you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Colossians? We're going to finish the book today. And uh, just, a, just a quick recap, nothing too in-depth here, but what we know is that in this book, Paul has given us some of the, uh, the deepest, most profound, most gr- uh, glorious Christological content. I mean, speaking of Jesus, just laying out for us who Jesus is, who Jesus really is. Because there were a lot of people in that day and age, and and still in the day and age that we live in, challenging the truth of who Christ really is, why He really came, what He really did. And so Paul addressed that head on, and he dealt with the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ in this book. He made the case that we don't need philosophy, we don't need legalism, we don't need mysticism and asceticism and Gnosticism. Those were all the things kind of combined that made up the, the heresy there in the Colossian church. You know, philosophy, the, the wisdom of the world. Christ is good, but we need to mix that with what the world says we need. Legalism, you know, Christ is good, but we still need to keep rules. We need to add to the cross. We need to add to Christ. Christ is good to save us, but now we have to keep ourselves mysticism you know these uh these experiences uh, extraordinary experiences that to this day so many people in the church are chasing after constantly asceticism that's self-denial punishing oneself as though the cross wasn't sufficient so let me help jesus out by beating up myself to uh to pay for my own sin when jesus said what it is finished it is finished at the cross there is no more payment to be made Gnosticism, this deeper knowledge, this hidden secret knowledge that only certain uh, people are privy to. That, you know, all of this kind of made up the, the Colossian false teachings. And, and Paul says, look, no, you don't need any of that. Christ is enough. Christ is more than enough. And that, that is really, Paul spent the first couple chapters driving that point home thoroughly. And then he went on to talk about how in Christ we are brand new. You are a brand new man, a brand new woman. The old man, the old woman has died and the new has come. Then he goes on to talk about what that means, what that looks like in everyday living. What does that look like for wives? What does that look like for husbands? What does it look like for parents? What does it look like for children, employers, employees? You know, these kinds of things, they are grand, they are lofty, but they they come right down into everyday living. They connect to our lives. Amen? And so that's, that's what Paul has done. That's what he has, uh, he has demonstrated throughout this book. Now, in a, in a fashion that's very similar to that of Romans, he closes the letter by giving a farewell from all of his ministry companions that are there by his side here in Rome. We know that Paul is in prison at this point, somewhat of a house arrest, if you will, there in Rome. And so he's not free to come and go. He's, uh, he's able to work there, somewhat of an apartment, if you will. And he's on house arrest and he's chained to Roman guards. But he has friends that are there with him that are able to help him to serve and, and to minister. They're kind of his hands and feet, if you will. And so Paul is going to mention some of these folks by name as, he is, as he's closing this letter to the church there in Colossae. He's going to mention some of the people that are here with him. And what we see is a list of men that God used greatly in service to Christ, and they're alongside Paul. 
if you will, this is a, a snapshot of the types of people that God uses. A snapshot of the types of people that God uses in His service. And so that's why I've titled today's message, Fit for the Master's Use. Fit for the Master's Use. What does it look like? Who are the types of people that God uses in His service? So what I wanted to say at this point, I want to just clarify one thing. There is a sense in which God uses absolutely everybody. God uses the righteous and the godly, but God also uses the wicked for His purposes. We know that God used Pharaoh, right, in Egypt. Well, that's not what I'm talking about here. We don't want to be used like Pharaoh was used, right? That's not what I'm talking about today. When I talk about being used by God, I'm talking about born-again believers being used by God for the advancement of His purposes in Christ for the praise of His glorious grace. Amen? We want to be used by God for the praise of His glorious grace. That's who we want to be. That's what we want to do. That's what these men uh, displayed for us. And, you know, it's, in many ways, it's just a list of names and Paul's commendation for these guys. It would be real easy to just blow over this. But I think that there's some really good insight in here for us that will truly encourage us. And so these were men who were fit for the master's use. God made them fit. And that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing. He is taking people who are not fit, who are not qualified to demonstrate His grace and to, to praise Him for His glorious grace. He saves us, redeems us from our lost state, from our, our rebellious state, and then He makes us new and He makes us fit. He makes us useful. And that's the very thing that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. He says this in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And that's what we want to be, folks, sanctified and useful for the master. And he talks about these vessels of dishonor and vessels of honor. And so I, you bring this into the modern context. Um, in Tennessee, at, at one point, I was living on a place that was somewhat of a farm, I guess, and, and we had pigs, and we would feed the pigs. And so what would we feed them? We would feed them just the food that didn't get eat, eaten in the house. And so we would put it in a bucket, and that was a slop bucket is what we called it. Just an orange Home Depot bucket full of nasty old food, but those pigs would eat up. Now, that's a vessel of dishonor right there. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I were to have you into my home, I'm not going to pull out the slop bucket and walk around the table and scoop out of it and throw it on your plate, right? That would be very dishonorable, would it not? I wouldn't do that to you. But when we have guests over, I'm going to break out the good, the, the nice dishes, you know, the, the clean Tupperware. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't use fine china, so I wouldn't break out the fine china for you. Sorry. But, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to pull out the slop bucket. And so... That's, that's who we were outside of Christ. I hate to break it to you. You know, we were slop buckets, okay? And God gets a hold of our lives. He cleans us up. He saves us. He changes us. And He makes us fit for honorable use, fit for the Master's use. And so that's what I'm talking about here today. And I remember early on in my walk, a pastor quoted this verse to me, 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, 
to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He said, Rob, God is looking for people through whom he can show himself strong, through whom he can show himself glorious and merciful. He wants to use you. And I thought, God could use me. And I don't know why, I praise God that that meant so much to me. You know, out of the life that I came out of, I know that I was a, a, a weapon in the enemy's hand. You know, I know that Satan had used me and used my life greatly to do much damage. And when I came to God, I knew that I couldn't take back any of that. I couldn't take it back. But I could spend the rest of my life now being used by God to serve and bless other people in Jesus' name. And so the, the idea that God could, that God would use me, that, that changed everything. That became the burning fire of my, my heart and my life. And from that point forward, my path was I wanted to be that man. I wanted to become that man that God could use mightily. I wanted to be that vessel that was fit for the Master's use. Amen? And that's what God is doing. And that's what we're going to see in our text today, kind of what that looks like as we look at this list of names here in Colossians chapter 4. So we're going to pick up in verse 7. And I'll say the first point if you want to be fit for the master's use, make it your aim to be one who could be counted on. What we're talking about here is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Verse 7. Paul says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may, make, uh, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So Tychicus here, he's mentioned five times in the New Testament, and he was a traveling companion of Paul's, and uh, it seems like when Paul was there in Asia Minor serving, that was where this guy came onto the scene originally, and we know that he was just a faithful brother. He was with Paul through thick and thin, and first and foremost, Paul says that he is a beloved brother. You know, he was a believer, that's, the, that's the, the first thing right there. You want to be used by God, you have to be in the family. You've got to be a child of God. You've got to be a brother. You've got to be a sister. You have to know the Lord. And so he was a beloved brother. He was a member of the family. He was a member of the family. Paul said, look, this guy, Tychicus here, he's a brother. He's a brother. He's, he's, he's one of us. He's a, he's a child of God. He's a member of the family. He said he's a faithful minister faithful minister. So there are a number of different words used in the New Testament for servant, and minister would be one of them. And this is, you know, sometimes we think minister somehow is like a position of prestige, but it really means it's a, it's a servant. It's a place of service. Ministry is service, and a minister is a servant. And he's a faithful servant. He was a faithful minister. He was dependable and reliable to help and serve other people. He could be counted on. He was trustworthy. He was trustworthy. He had that kind of a reputation. And he was a fellow servant in the Lord, Paul says. He was devoted and committed to the service of Jesus. You know, the Bible uses that term a lot, a servant. And that's a badge of honor for the Christian because our Lord was a servant. He said that he came not to be served, but what? To serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he said, the way up in the kingdom is down. You humble yourself. God will exalt you. But we are to humble ourselves and serve 
the Lord and to serve one another. And that's exactly what Tychicus was. He was a, a man of great service to the Lord first off, first of all, but then also to others. And that's the kind of person that God uses. Someone who's willing to, to put their own rights down and to look to serve other people. That's the kind of person that God uses. And then Paul said this about Tychicus. He's going he's gonna to tell you about me. He's going to tell you about me. Tychicus was a courier. He was a, a, a sanctified mailman, if you will. He was the guy that would deliver letters for Paul, especially right here. So he was going to take this letter to Colossae there. And this isn't like, hey, Tychicus, see you next week. Thank you for delivering this mail. It's like, get on the road and I'll see you next year. I mean, this was serious. When Tychicus committed to take this letter and then uh, deliver it to this destination, this was going to be a long-term commitment. And it was going to be a very dangerous commitment for him to make. But he was committed because he was a servant. And I love how it says that he's going to tell you about me. You know, Tychicus wasn't going to tell them about himself. Tychicus, his objective was to point to another, essentially, to spread, to, to tell the people what was going on with Paul. And really, man, that's, that's what it's all about, folks. It is not about us, right? As a servant, you want to know the kind of person that God is going to use, the kind of person that's going to make it about him. You know, it's, I'm not here to tell you about me. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. What did, what did John the Baptist say? I must decrease and he must what? Increase. Remember, John's John's disciples got upset when Jesus stepped onto the scene and all the people were coming to him. And they came to John and said, look, man, everybody's going to him now. And John said, look, that was the plan all along. It was my objective to point people to Christ. He was the forerunner of Christ. Don't, don't get upset for me. You know, I must decrease. He must increase. It's all about Jesus. So the person who's willing not to try to take glory or credit, but to, to communicate for the other person. That's just, I see great humility in this. His, Tychicus did not have a ministry of great prominence. It wasn't a spotlight type of a ministry. Probably wasn't a very thank, uh, it was probably a thankless ministry in many ways, but that was okay. He was a humble servant. He was a humble servant. And what we know is that he was an available man. He was available. To be able to serve like this, he was available, which means that we have to die to ourselves in many ways. You know, sometimes we have to put our, our wish list, our ambitions, our goals in life aside if there's a conflict of interest between that and what the Lord would have us do. Sometimes we've got to thin out some things. We've got so much going on in our own lives that there's nothing there for the Lord. There's nothing left to serve the Lord with. But this was an available man. This was a huge commitment that he was undertaking, and he was available. He was trustworthy. Paul knew that he could deliver, he could send these letters with Tychicus, and Tychicus would go as a faithful minister, and that those letters would get there. And as I said, he was a humble man. And then Paul said that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. That he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. So he was a competent man. He was competent to minister on Paul's behalf. Paul couldn't come, so he said, I'm sending Tychicus to you. And he is going to know your circumstances, and he is going to comfort your heart. He's going to comfort your heart. So he was competent to minister on Paul's behalf. And you know, Paul says in Romans 15 that that's true of all of us. In Romans 15, 14, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, 
that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. And that word admonish there, it's counsel or instruct. Now Paul is talking to some first century Christians in Rome who did not even have the New Testament writings that we have. And he said, you guys, I know, I am so confident that you, you are full of goodness, knowledge, and you are totally capable, totally competent to counsel, encourage, instruct one another. How much more now are we? 2,000 years later, we've got the Word of God, we've got the Spirit of God, and so God will use you. God will use us if we are faithful, faithful to Him and faithful to each other, available, trustworthy, humble, amen, willing. That's the kind of person that God uses. So make it your aim to be one who can be counted on. The next one, B, make it your aim to be useful despite past sins. If you want to be fit for the master's use, make it your aim to be useful despite your past. A lot of people get held down because of their past. They can't let go of the past. Verse 9 here, it says, With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So the name Onesimus should be familiar to you if you've been studying your Bible for any time. Um, in the book of Philemon, Paul wrote a letter. In fact, that letter, Philemon, is also with this letter Colossians here that's going to be delivered to Colossae because Philemon lived in Colossae and there was a church in Philemon's house. We'll talk about that a little later here. Well, Philemon, he had a slave, Onesimus. And we talked about this last week, um, or a couple weeks ago, the issue of slavery in, in, the ancient, in the ancient cultures. And I know that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, and, and some people really struggle with that, and I, and I understand that. But it was just a very real part of the way that the world worked. And so it wasn't Christianity's objective to come in and, and overthrow all of that. The influence of Christianity through the generations has absolutely changed the institution of slavery in many ways and in many places. It's abolished it altogether in many ways and many places. But what God was most concerned with was humane treatment, humane treatment within that institution and how to glorify God in the midst of whatever situation you find yourself in. And so Philemon had this, this slave there, as I, I've said, I've heard some estimations there are up to 50% of the population in Rome at that time were, were slaves. And Onesimus left. left. He, he fled from, from Philemon's house, and that's what the letter of Philemon is about, essentially. So Onesimus, there in Colossae, a slave to Philemon, left, and it appears that he stole from Philemon to probably to fund his, his uh, journey to get to Rome where he could really blend in and escape, if you will, and just kind of go off the grid and never be heard from or seen again. And so this, uh, this Onesimus ends up there in Rome where Paul is incarcerated and somehow connects with Paul, and Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And then Paul tells Onesimus, you know what, man, you've got to go back. You've got to go back. And so Onesimus does that very thing. He does go back. And that's what, as I said, the letter of Philemon is about. And so he's writing to Philemon in that letter to tell him that he needs to receive him back now, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, and to forgive him. And so that's kind of the backdrop here with this, this guy Onesimus. And so 
Paul says of Onesimus that he's a faithful and beloved brother. He says he's one of you. Now he's native, a native of Colossae, and he's going back to Colossae, but now he's, he's one of you. He's a brother in Christ. No longer a slave, but a brother. And so this is an example of one who was not disqualified because of his past. You know, he may have stolen from Philemon, who knows what he did, but he was willing to go back, and that wasn't going to stop him because, interestingly enough, a lot of, uh, a lot of commentators um, and theologians speculate that, um, that Onesimus went on to be a, a pastor in Ephesus many years later. Uh, there, was, there was a guy, Ignatius, uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, right at the end of the first century, who was uh, persecuted and martyred ultimately unto death. And uh, he was extradited and he was taken to Rome where he was going to be killed. And along the way, he was writing letters to various churches. And one of those letters was to um, a pastor, the bishop in the church of Ephesus, uh, a guy named Onesimus. And so uh, it's kind of interesting to think, but many have, uh, many believe that that's exactly what happened, that Onesimus went back, Philemon totally received him, forgave him, that he, was, he became a freed man and became a pastor and then ended up going over to Ephesus there in Asia Minor and became the pastor of the church. And that church had such a rich heritage. Paul started it, Timothy pastored it for a while, the apostle John pastored it until he died an old man of natural cause, and then somewhere thereafter Onesimus may have come in and taken that church. <clears throat> really fascinating. So this guy went on, it would appear, to be used by God in tremendous ways. He was not held back by his past. So often we disqualify ourselves when God would not disqualify us. Oftentimes we disqualify others when God would not disqualify them. I know my pastor in Tennessee, he was from California, and uh, he had a... He had, gone to prison, a couple different prisons, Folsom, and was one, and then he um, came to Christ, radical conversion, started serving the Lord, went to Tennessee to plant a church, and when news had reached there in this little country town in the hills of Tennessee that this pastor was there and that he had been in prison, this one pastor there said, that guy can't be a pastor, he's a convict, and that, that is a, you know, it's a shame. And some people have that kind of mindset, you know. That's why I say here in this church, the more prison time you've done, the more qualified you are to be a pastor in my mind. You know, that's, that's, that's a prerequisite here. You've done time in county, you've done time in the pen, all right. Onesimus was not held back by his past. He was not held back. Um, it's interesting. Paul says of Onesimus, the name means useful, um, Onesimus. And in the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, he says, you know, Onesimus was, was useless, but now he's useful to me and to you. He's truly useful now, you know. It's kind of a play on words there. Useful was useless, but now he's useful. And the, the reality is that we were useless outside of Christ, and God has made us useful. There's that word. He's made us useful. We are useful for the Master fit for the master's use. And Onesimus was one who was willing to make wrongs right. And that's a big deal. God uses people like that. You're willing to make wrongs right. And, and believe me when I tell you, when Onesimus went back, it could have gone really badly for him. He was really taking a major risk. Um, 
you know, they, they could have branded his forehead, you know, uh, you know, that best case scenario if they really wanted to make, make a, a, you know, make a lesson out of this for everybody else out of, out of Onesimus. They could have branded his forehead, and it was um, a couple different, a couple different uh, ways they could have done it, but one would be the mark of a fugitive, uh, and, and that was like kind of best case scenario. He could have been crucified. And so he was willing to go back and, and try to make this right, even though it might have cost him dearly. And that, that's a big deal. That's really amazing to me because I know many Christians who, who just, they won't. They're not willing to humble themselves. They're not willing to try to make things right because they are just so convinced that they are right. And how dare you say that to me? Or oftentimes that, that is kind of the... Uh, the response that you get, you know, and, and humility, humility is hearing something when someone comes to you, examining yourself, praying about it, seeing if it's true, and if it is, owning it and repenting of it and changing. And that was what Onesimus did. And so oftentimes, and, he, and there were extreme consequences potentially for him, but he did it anyways. And oftentimes, I, it's sad, but I see Christians that are they're so, they're not teachable. There is no humility. If you come to them with an issue, their first thing is they're going to attack, right? And so, uh, God uses somebody who, one, you know, they're, they, despite past sins, they can move on. They can move on and that they can grow and that they can still be used. And they're teachable. They're humble. They're willing to make, make wrongs right. And we see that, we see that with uh, Onesimus. If you want to be fit for the master's use, make it your aim to be a compassionate and faithful friend. Still there in verse 10, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, Aristarchus, he first appeared during Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus. Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than he stayed anywhere else for three years there in Asia Minor. And that's where we first see Aristarchus. Now, there was a time when uh, there was just this tumult that broke out there. This pagan mob flipped out, and they were looking for Paul, and they couldn't find Paul, so they found Aristarchus, and they, they dragged him off and beat him nearly to death. And you would think that would be the end of Aristarchus, right? I think most of us would be like, okay, you know what? That's not what I signed up for. And uh, okay, uh, no, that's, not, I'm not, that's not cool. So, but Aristarchus didn't do that. He just dug, dug in even more deeply after that. And in fact, throughout when, when Paul was going back to Jerusalem at the end of his, his third missionary journey, you remember the prophet Agabus came to him and took his belt and bound him and said, the man that wears this belt is going to be bound and, and handed over when he gets to Jerusalem. Well, knowing that Aristarchus still traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, and then Paul was arrested there in Jerusalem, and then he was taken to Caesarea where he was in prison for a couple of years, and then he was shipped from Caesarea to Rome, and uh, Aristarchus was with him the whole time. Aristarchus was with him through all of that. And so... Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. What's interesting is, is that commentators believe that he wasn't actually in prison with Paul. 
And the, the idea here is that he was practically a prisoner. He was right by Paul's side through much of his prison experience. He might as well have been a prisoner. And that to me is really interesting because he didn't have to be. He was not a prisoner. He didn't have to be there through all of that the way that he was. But he was a very compassionate and faithful friend. A very compassionate and faithful friend. You know, Proverbs 18.24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friendship is so important. It's so important in the kingdom of God. One of the greatest ways that God uses us is through friendship. Did you know that? One of the greatest ways that God will use us in people's lives is through friendship. Because you can really get to know somebody when they're a friend. You can really get to know who they actually are. You can know what their struggles are. You can know what their needs are. The walls come down. Communication happens. And you can really pray for, you can really minister to, you can really serve and be there for a friend in a way that you can't be for people who don't, who don't really let their guards down. And so friendship is so very important in the kingdom of God. If you want to have friends, you got to be a friend. Right. And that's how you have compassion on people. It's hard to have compassion on people that you don't even know, right? And so when you get close to somebody, when you get vulnerable, when you get transparent, when they do with you as well, and you really get to know somebody's fears, somebody's pain, somebody's hurt, somebody's failures, compassion and sympathy can begin to really develop. And so that's important. It's important to have friends and to be a friend and to be able to be compassionate and sympathetic in that way. And I love that verse there. It says there's a friend who is closer than a brother. And of course, we know who that is. That's Jesus. Jesus is a friend that is closer than a brother. Amen. I mean, who is more faithful and compassionate than Jesus? You know, who is, who is a more sympathetic high priest than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has been more of a friend to us than our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he models this better than anyone in all of human history. You know, he made himself totally vulnerable. He, he left his heavenly glory, came here to this earth, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to the lowest place, and he became friends with sinners, with broken people. And he became a friend of sinners. And he ultimately gave his life away for his friends. He gave his life away. He died the most horrific, gruesome death imaginable. He was betrayed, abandoned, rejected, mocked, tortured, and he ultimately died. And all of that was for us, frankly. That was for his friends. You know, he was rejected, abandoned, and betrayed by his friends, but still he died for his friends. He loved them to the very end. He loved us to the very end. That's the kind of faithfulness, that's the kind of friend that we have in Jesus. Amen? See, that's, that's the good news. We, we, we serve a God like that. And that is the distinction between Christianity and every other kind of religion out there. You know, God became man. And he became a friend of sinners. And he died a sinner's death in the place of sinners. Because we owed a debt that we could never pay. We would spend all of eternity paying the debt. Paying for our sin. Being punished for our sin against an 
an absolutely holy and pure and just God. But this same God, who is full of love and grace and who is rich in mercy, gave the very best that He had to give. He gave His one and only Son, Jesus. And Jesus came in obedience to the Father, and He lived the life that none of us could ever live in a thousand lifetimes. Anybody who believes in reincarnation, I'm sorry, be reincarnated a million times, you'll never measure up. Jesus did it one time. He came, He lived a perfect life one time, and He lived it for us. And when He died in our place on the cross, His perfect life was, was put in our, on our account. You know, It was accredited to us. That righteous man, His life became our life. And our sin became His sin there on the cross. And He died and He paid the price for our sin. And it was forgiven. It was forgiven there at the cross because it was a perfect sacrifice. And now we have forgiveness in Jesus. Amen. What a friend we have in Him, right? So we've had a friend in Jesus. We have a friend in Jesus. We need to be a friend. We need to be a compassionate and faithful friend. To be fit for the Master's use, make it your aim to press on despite turbulent beginnings. Anybody in here ever had a rocky start in your Christian walk? Praise God, that doesn't stop you, all right? So make it your aim to press on despite that. 10b, the latter part there, it says, with Mark the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, this is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, as it says here. This is Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And we believe that when uh, Jesus and the disciples had uh, the, the, the Passover meal there, the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was to be crucified, this would have probably been in John Mark's house. John Mark's house. So it's, it's that John Mark. And we know that Barnabas was a very faithful friend to Paul. Saul there initially, he came to Christ. He became Paul the Apostle. That was his Gentile name. He had a dual citizenship. He was a Roman as well. And so Paul the Apostle, uh, the Apostle and Barnabas were, were very close, very tight, and used powerfully in ministry. Well, Barnabas brought along his... Uh, brought along uh, Mark here on their first missionary journey and a couple towns in, what happened? Mark said, man, I didn't sign up for all this. And so he was out. Not like Aristarchus. Aristarchus hung in there, but Mark, for whatever reason, we don't know exactly, he bailed. And uh, he took off. And then we know not long after that, Paul did end up being stoned in Galatia and left for dead. Some people think he did die. And then that was kind of the end of that missionary journey. And uh, that actually happened in Timothy's hometown. So Timothy would have probably been about 14, 15 years old there. He may have eyewitnessed Paul being stoned like that. Seems like Timothy came to Christ at that time. And then Paul came back a couple years later. They said, hey, let's, let's go back. Let's go for it again. And Barnabas said, all right, well, uh, let's, t- let's take Mark with us this time. And Paul said, no, uh-uh, sorry, not going to happen. And so um, Paul, Paul didn't do it. And they, they actually ended up having somewhat of a, a fight, Paul and Barnabas, if you will. And so Barnabas said, fine, then I'll take Mark and we'll go this way. And then Paul took Silas and he went that way. And there was so much that Paul and Barnabas had gone through and nothing could divide them until this happened. And then they were divided. It's, it's really a sad story in a, in a lot of ways. But that, that was kind of Mark's beginning there. 
That was Mark's beginning. And he, he says, this Mark, about whom you've re received instruction, we really don't know what Paul is getting at there, what Paul's talking about, the instruction. But he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. That's a, that's a full commendation. That's a full commendation there by, by Paul. So something had happened here. You know, Mark had defected in this first missionary journey, but somewhere along the way, something happened because now Paul gives him a full commendation. And, and there, there have been some thoughts as to what has happened here, and that is, <clears throat> for one thing, Peter and Mark seem to have had a very special relationship, the Apostle Peter. Uh, and we all know Peter. And look, if anybody knows about failing, it would be Peter, right? Peter denied knowing the Lord. When Peter boasted in the fact that everyone else will fall away, everybody else, they will fail you, but I won't, I'll die for you. And that night he denied knowing Jesus three times. So Peter knew a thing or two about failure. And Peter and Mark were very close. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. In fact, we believe that the gospel of Mark, the gospel that was written by Mark, in, in many ways is the gospel of Peter. That Peter, much of that information that was penned there was really given to Mark by Peter. And so they... They had a really tight-knit bond there, and I just kind of have to believe that, that Peter was very instrumental in, in reconciling Mark to, to, uh, to Paul, right? And so years later, when Paul really is, he's in another imprisonment. You know, Paul had a thing with prisons. He couldn't stay free for long. And so Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me. For ministry. That's amazing. Something happened, and there was a full circle here, and now Mark had become very useful for the master's service. He became very useful even to Paul. And so even though something happened there in the beginning, after Mark had come to know the Lord and gone off into ministry, and he failed miserably, it didn't stop him. He continued to, to move forward. He continued to grow. He was mentored by Peter. And he became a mighty man of God. And he became one who was really useful to the Lord. Very useful indeed. Make it your aim to serve the king no matter the cost. Verse 11. It says, And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So Jesus, who is called Justice here, he was a Jew, but he uh, had a, a Roman name, Justice. And so here he most likely was a Christian there in Rome who was a Jew at the same time, and he was one of the only ones. Aristarchus was a Jew, and so was Mark, but they had come from, they had come from Israel and then from Asia Minor, but this is apparently the only, the only Jewish Christian there in Rome who is serving with Paul. Now, that's very significant. I mean, you think about that. There was a lot of hostility against Christians by the Jews there. And as I had mentioned before, when Jesus was still teaching and preaching and, and doing miracles and all that, it had already gotten to the point where if you confessed to be a disciple of Jesus's, that you would be kicked out of the Jewish community, put out everything that, that you knew and, and belonged to, you're, you're now out. You're ostracized. And so 
There had been a lot of turbulence in Rome with the Jews. All the Jews had even been kicked out because there was some kind of an uprising, we believe, between the, the Jews and the Christians there. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail here. But there was a, a time when all the Jews had been kicked out of Rome because of that. The, the Romans just didn't put up with that kind of stuff. And so they, they are now back in the land. The Jews are back there in Rome at this point. And um, I just think that you were taking a real risk to name the name of Christ. And so I think that that is why this justice here was the only one of the circumcision that was there serving faithfully with Paul. And in fact, he had proved to be a comfort. He had proved to be a great comfort to Paul. And so this was a man, I believe, who counted the cost and he was willing to pay the cost to serve the Lord because it would come at a cost to him. You know, and a lot of us, we don't know anything about that, you know. We live in a time and a place where it doesn't cost us anything to name the name of the Lord truly. I don't think it's going to always be that way. I think, I think we're rapidly moving in a direction now where that's, that's going to change. But in a lot of places, when you call upon the name of the Lord, that's it. You're marked. Your life as you know it will cease to be. And, you know, this was a guy who was willing to do that because Jesus was more than enough. You know, there were people who would come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. At one point, Jesus said to a, a young man who said, said, I want to follow you. He said, look, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? You know, I might be all that you have. Am I enough? You sure you want to follow me? And so Jesus said, we got to be willing to count the cost and pay the cost. We've got to be willing to put our hands to the plow and keep moving forward. We don't look back. We don't stop short. We keep moving forward in Jesus' name, despite the cost. Amen? If you want to be greatly used by God, you've got to be a person who's willing to pay the cost. Make it your aim to labor lovingly and passionately for others. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Hierapolis. So we know that this Epaphras here most likely is the one who planted the church in Colossae there. He's the one that kind of, this whole thing is initiated, this whole writing of the letter is initiated because of him. So Paul, again, he was in Ephesus for those three and a half years. And Epaphras most likely came to faith in Christ there under Paul's ministry and moved back over to Colossae and planted the church there in Colossae. And after, I don't know, there's different guesstimates, between five to ten years, all this stuff came, came to a head, and Epaphras said, I, gotta, I have to go and find Paul. And he came to Paul in Rome, and he gave him a report of everything that had happened there in Colossae to the church. And so because of that, Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, and he's going to send this letter back by way of uh, Tychicus and Onesimus, for that matter. And so he says, look, Epaphras, who is one of you, he was a native of Colossae and the pioneer of the church, but he was a fellow saint. He was a brother and a bondservant. Epaphras had surrendered his life in service to the Lord Christ. He said, Epaphras is here with me, and he's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And so he was a man, a faithful man of prayer. You know, he was a man of passion. 
Epaphras was a sold-out man. He was a single-hearted, single-minded man. He was not double-minded. He was focused in on what was best for this church, to the glory of Christ. And he had given his life to this end as a servant of Jesus. And he said that, look, Epaphras is laboring fervently for you in prayer, praying tirelessly for them. This word laboring here, if I'm, if I'm correct on this, um, it's a word that is in some places used uh, as um, to fight. When, when Jesus said to Pilate, if my servants were of this world, they would fight for me. Uh, same word. And so essentially he's saying, look, this, this brother, this faithful brother, this servant in Christ is fighting for you guys. He's fighting for you in prayer, praying tirelessly for you. To what end that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, that they would be mature, that they would be mature, that they would grow up in Christ and that they would be centered in the will of God, that they would be right where God would have them to be. That was Epaphras' prayer for the church. And he said, I bear him witness, he has a great zeal for you. He was focused, he was passionate, he was zealous to that end. That's the kind of person that God wants to use. And so we want to make it our aim to be those who, who labor lovingly and passionately for others, not least of which in prayer. Man, we really do not pray as we ought. You know, maybe, maybe I'm just the only one in here. Maybe it's just me. But I got a feeling I'm not. And, it, and it's unfortunate. It's hard to pray so often, I know. But prayer is such a wonderful thing that God has given us and it's such an effective tool. It makes, us, it makes us, you know, an effective instrument in God's hands, in the Redeemer's hand, if we would be about prayer. And he said, look, this guy is fighting for you. He is praying for you, that you would be mature and centered right there in God's will. You know, he was a conduit. He was the kind of guy that God could use because he was others-focused. And this... Um, and when it comes to generosity, giving, right, I've heard it said that if God can get it through you, He can get it to you. Oftentimes, God, you know, he, He's not going to get the resources to us because He knows it's going to stop right there. You know, thank you, Lord, I'll take it from here. And then redirect and spend it in some totally other direction, right? But God, if He can get it through you, He'll get it to you. If he knows that you'll be others focused. And so that's what Epaphras was. That was the way that he lived his life. He was very others focused. He was a conduit through which God could work. And that's the kind of person we want to be. That's the kind of person we want to be. That's the kind of person that is fit for the master's use. And that was Epaphras. If you want to be used by the master, fit for the master's use, make it your aim to be a selfless servant. Now Luke here. Luke, the beloved physician verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician. Now we know that Luke was a traveling companion with Paul for long periods of time. In fact, he wrote the book of Luke and the, uh, the book of Acts. Luke did. And you'll notice in Acts that oftentimes when he's writing, he'll go, he'll go back and forth between they did such and such and we did such, such and such. Because basically what's happening there is that on and off throughout the book, Luke is actually there. He is with Paul in his travels and at times he's not. And so you can see much of the book of Acts is written in that way. He was there with Paul in much of Paul's distress and difficulties. And he says here that Luke is a beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. Luke was a doctor. 
Uh, just a side note, some people have said, some, some have speculated that Luke was actually a slave and that he was a doctor. And that was, again, common. Uh, teachers, physicians could be slaves. And when he writes the, books, the book of uh, Luke, for sure, and I think in Acts, uh, I'd have to go back and look, he, he addresses these books that he's writing to a person named Theophilus. Oh, excellent, Theophilus. And some have thought that he was, um, that that's the title, Theophilus, excellent Theophilus, and that that might have been Luke's uh, master and that he commissioned Luke to go and to put together these accounts that we know as the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Just a side note, it's pretty fascinating, but that was how Luke served the Lord as a physician. Paul was kind of a sickly guy. Paul had a lot of infirmities, frequent infirmities, and you know, he was, he was just beaten, frequently starving, shipwrecked, cold. Uh, he has some serious issue with his eyes. Uh, it seems like he may have even been nearly blind. And so he had a lot of problems, and it, it seems like Luke really served Paul this way. Luke served him as a physician, namely in, in his service to the Lord and there in, in Paul's travels. And so, you know, God gifts us in a, in, a, in a variety of ways, God gifts us for His use. And are we using our gifts to the glory of God? You know, uh, everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, you have a gift. You have a gift. And, and some people are just gifted in ways they've been gifted most of their lives. It's just natural talents and abilities. Uh, however it is, God uses those. You have those for a reason. And Luke was willing to use his giftings for the service of to others and service to the Lord, and God used him that way. And so it was about serving other people. He was a selfless servant. He was wholly devoted to Christ, and God used him in amazing ways. If you put Luke and Acts together, volume-wise, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. And that's pretty fascinating. And then in the end of Paul's life there, again in 2 Timothy, he talks about how everybody had deserted him, Except there in verse, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. Only Luke. And so there at the very end of Paul's life, he's getting ready to die. And the only person who's there with him in his imprisonment is Luke. Man, what a faithful and selfless servant. When no one else was there, Luke was there, serving faithfully. A, willing to be, a willingness to be where the need is when the need arises. You know, a lot of people just don't have that mindset. That's the kind of person that God uses. All right, next. Make it your aim to guard against worldliness. If you want to be fit for the master's use, make it your aim to guard against worldliness. Notice there in verse 14, it says, And Demas greets you. Everybody that he has named, he's have given some kind of commendation. You know, beloved, faithful, servant, so on and so forth. And then Demas, and that's it. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting. I think that's telling because I think already the, the signs were there. Something was going sideways with Demas. And then again, in the, the names that are mentioned there in 2 Timothy, where we just looked at Luke, it says there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul is talking to Timothy because Paul knows that his time is running out. He says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. So Demas was not faithful to the end. Demas 
loved the world, and Demas forsook Paul for the world. It's a tragic story, and you know what? Demas served for 20 years. Uh, Demas served for 20 years with Paul, and then he defected, you know? Let this be a warning to us, folks. Let this be a warning because the world is it's pulling always, and it, it's relentless. The world is going to be pulling on you 30, 40 years into your Christian walk. You know, we, we got this flesh, we got Satan, and we got this world. We are in a battle, and the battle is real, and the battle is hot. And worldliness, man, falling back into the world, going back from where we came, forgetting from where God has saved us, and somehow thinking it was better back there and going back. You see that happen far too often in the church. And there's no place for that. You can't be a worldly Christian. You're either worldly or you're a Christian, but you can't be both. And Demas knew that, evidently, and he made his choice. You know what? Demas couldn't pay the cost. He counted the cost. It was too great. It was more than he could pay, and he went back. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both. You can't do both. James 4, 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we got to guard against that. The world is enticing. The philosophies of the world. There's just a lot going on in the world that we live in today. There's a, a lot of attacks on Christianity and on the Christian worldview. And there's all this stuff that's being put forth. And you see the, our, our children, they go off into the, to college and they get lured away by, by the philosophical worldviews of the day. See, that's what's really pulling people more than anything. It's not so much drugs and, and sex and music and all that, all that stuff, even though that stuff is as bad as it can be. It's, it's pure poison. It's the ideologies of the world that is really causing people to defect, the young folks of, our, of this day. But whatever it is, got to guard against it. And, I, and to the, the younger believers in this room and those watching right now, I watch it happen. They're on fire for Christ. They're committed. And then a week goes by, two weeks, a month, two months, three months, six months, and that passion is not quite there anymore. And their heart becomes divided. And the things of God aren't, aren't the priority anymore. And they get distracted by the cares of the world and the wants and the desires of the world and the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. And then what happens? They turn. And it's incremental. It's not like they wake up in a day and say, I'm going to defect. It happens slowly, but it happens surely. And, you know, sometimes I feel like there's people in our church right now, I'm watching that happen, and that really grieves me, grieves me, and I know it's coming. And we have to look at Demas and say, let that not be me. Let us learn from the life of Demas. Let that not be us. You want to be used by God, make it your aim to guard against worldliness. Do not be pulled out into the world. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up here. Uh, this, at this point, Paul is basically closing the letter out, and he's um, kind of some final words to those who are in Colossae. So this was, this was Paul's farewell to the Colossian church from his ministry companions. Now just a couple of closing words here to those who are in Colossae. So 
there's kind of a shift here, but I'm going to keep this theme. Make it your aim to associate with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. So Epaphras planted this church there, but the church grew into surrounding areas. And Paul says, look, greet the brothers and sisters and greet the brothers and sisters in the surrounding areas and the other churches. And the other churches met in houses there. That was the only way they met in houses or at the temple they would meet. We know uh, there in Jerusalem and Acts, but of course here there wasn't, they didn't have that temple. So they met in houses. And so, again, I think the emphasis here is the need to be in community. You want to be used by God? Be in community. Take seriously being with the brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't want to be used by God? Isolate yourself. I mean, it just makes sense. How can you be used by God if you isolate? If you're on an island, if you're all by yourself, if you want to be useful in the Master's hands, then you must be in community. Next, make it your aim to prioritize the reading of God's Word. Verse 16, Now when the epistle is read among you, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul says when this letter arrives, read it. Read it to everybody and then pass it around. And that was the way that these letters worked. They were meant to be universal in a sense. The letter would go to a certain place. It was meant for that place. It would be read there, but then they would copy it, and they would send the letter to the next place. They would read it out loud to the church, copy it, and send it to the next place. And that's why we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts of letters, because that was the way that the letters populated the early church. Really interesting. But the emphasis there was on the public reading of the Word of, uh, the word of God, as these men were inspired the inspired scriptures, um, Paul emphasizes the reading of, of these. And so you want to be used by God? You need to know the Word of God. You need to make the Word of God a priority in your life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now I want you to catch that. Do you want to be equipped? Do you want to have everything that you need to be equipped for every good work? Then you need the Word of God. And that, that to me, was a game changer because I thought, I don't need, I mean, there's so many things out there that the, church, the churches and Christianity at large, you'll hear people say you need this, you need that. Well, what you need, according to the Bible, is simply the Word of God. If you got the Word of God, you're equipped. You are thoroughly equipped, complete for every good work. And so, no, no wonder Paul said, make sure you guys read this, read it, circulate it, read it, take it in. And so, if you want to be useful for God, prioritize, prioritize the, the Word of God. Next, make it your aim to fulfill your God-given ministry. Verse 17. It says, And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, Archippus was Philemon's son. So Philemon, the, the, guy, the master of Onesimus, Philemon had a church that met in his house, and his son Archippus became the pastor of that church. And so Paul is essentially commissioning Archippus here, and he's saying, look, step to it, man. Own it. This is your God-given ministry. Fulfill it. And so if you want to be used by God, if you want to be fit for the master's use, 
then fulfill your God-given ministry. We all have something in here to serve the Lord with. God has called us to serve Him in some capacity. And it's for you to figure out what that is. What does that look like? And it can look very different from person to person. It just does. It does. And they're all valuable, and they are all necessary. There's not one that's more important than the other. It may look so very different, but in the end, you're going to be rewarded by God for your faithfulness to serve in the ministry that God has given you. And so step into it, folks. You want to be used by God? Figure out what God's called you to do and own it. Amen? Make it your aim to be sustained in the grace of God. If you want to serve well, if you want to be, a, be fit for the Master's use, you must rely upon the grace of God. Verse 18, This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So as I said, Paul was, we think, nearly blind and uh, at, at least severely he had severe problems with his eyes. And he would often have an amanuensis, a secretary that would, dic- he, uh, would write as he would read to them. Or they would write as he would recite these things to them. And um, he says, but look, I'm signing this with my own hand. And so it's kind of his apostolic authority here. And he says, remember my chains. He's in imprisonment there. And then he says, grace be with you. Amen. So you want to be used by God? It's all God's grace. It's all God's grace at the end of the day because th- this is the, the interesting thing. We can, we can be these things. We can strive to be these things but it's still all God's grace because we never measure up. None of us measure up. We never will measure up. We were saved by God's grace, we're sustained by God's grace, and we serve by God's grace. It's all the giftings, giftings and the, the kindness of God, right? And so Paul said, grace be with you. If you want to be used by God, if you want to be fit for the Master's use, you must walk in the grace that has been given you by God. You must walk in the grace. You must be empowered by God's grace. You must serve in God's grace. Amen?